The scripture reading tonight is Jude 8 through 16. Please join with me in reading that. I'll be reading the English Standard Version. Yet in like manner, these people also, relying on their dreams, defile the flesh, reject authority, and blaspheme, uh, blaspheme the glorious ones. But when the archangel Michael, contending with the devil, was disputing about the body of Moses, he did not presume to pronounce blasphemous state judgment, but said, The Lord rebuke you. But these people blaspheme all they do not understand, and they are destroyed by all that they, like unreasoning animals, understand instinctively. Woe to them! For they walked in the way of Cain and abandoned themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's era and Paris and Korah's rebellion. These are hidden reeves at your love feast. They feast with you without fear, shepherds feeding themselves, waterless clouds swept along by winds, fruitless trees in late autumn, twice dead, uprooted, wild waves of the sea casting up foam of their own shame, wandering stars for whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever. It is also about these that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord cometh with ten thousand of his holy ones to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly of their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way and all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against him. These are grumblers, malcontents, following their own sinful desires. They are loudmouth boasters showing favoritism to gain advantage. Please be seated. Well, thank you for being with us tonight, and we're very grateful for the presence of everyone, and we're certainly thankful for those who are following along online that you would be with us and be interested in our study and our worship. We're very happy that you're tuned in over this medium as well, and uh, we look forward to being together once again Wednesday night, and I do look forward to that, and I hope that your week this week will be a very happy one, a very satisfying one, as you go about your daily lives and your living and I hope that you'll continue to be closely attuned to the Lord in prayer and continue to study His Word faithfully every single day, as I know that you do. We have been studying from the book of Jude. This is a second lesson on the book of Jude. And uh, we're trying to get a handle on this great uh, one-chapter book, and that's what we've been looking at. You'll find the insert into your bulletin, which gives you something of the perspective of what we will talk about tonight. And it will be um, uh, quite a challenge for us to do what we should be doing tonight in understanding what the book of Jude is about. You see, in last Sunday night's lesson, Jude was giving us the warning. But now Jude does more than just warn us. Jude now describes the character of these particular apostates, and he tells us what they will do. And I think Jude really is saying to us, I want to introduce the apostates to you. I want to tell you what they're really like, and in so doing, you'll be better prepared not to listen to them. In fact, once we get through that rather challenging list of characteristics which Perry read for us tonight, you begin to wonder, why would anybody listen to people like this anyway? But they do, 
And that's what Jude is saying. You've got to be warned over this matter so that you do not fall victim of it. It reinforces what we already know from what Peter said, 2 Peter chapter 2, and um, it reinforces again uh, this great message of the original part of the book. And you wonder, well, why does he go over it again? You know, parents do that. Parents go over it and remind the kids once again. Now, I told you, and, and kids will say, yeah, I already know that. But yet good parents will say, I know, but I'm going to tell you that again. In fact, Paul uses that kind of language in Philippians chapter 3 and verse 1. He says, it's not a burden for me to tell you this again. So we're learning about this again. We're learning about the warning again. But in addition to that, we have new information that he gives us about their character and what they do. And trying to get a handle on this is the best way that I possibly could. I thought that Jude is really saying three important things. And to remember this, I tried to pick out an R word for each of the points. The first point is that they reject divine authority. That'll be the first subject for development tonight. And that'll come to us in verses 8 through 11. And then the second point Jude is giving to us is that they will resort to all sorts of hypocrisy. And that will become clear as we study verses uh, uh, 12, 13, and then also 16. And then the final point will be that they receive their due penalty, verses 14 through 16, and that'll be a discussion about the judgment, which we always need, and we'll get greater insight into the matter. So let's not tarry, but let's consider the important matter of Jude in verse 8. And the great point that he's making in verse 8 is that they reject divine authority. Now, we need this lesson. And somebody says, well... I accept God's authority, and I'm sure that you do, but there are many people who do not, and we need this lesson about people who rejected God's divine authority in the days of Jude and in the days of the first century, as well as in the pages of the Old Testament. They were accountable to God, and God was going to hold them accountable, but they thought that they weren't accountable to anybody. They thought that they could do it their way. In fact, you wonder, where did they get this idea? And I think the point is given to us in verse 8. Yet in like manner, these people also, relying on their dreams, defiled the flesh. They didn't have a revelation from heaven. They were living in a dream world. And what they were really doing is they had believed the lies of Satan, just as Adam and Eve did in Genesis chapter 3 and the verse of verse 5. And that's what people do today. They're more concerned about doing things their way, living in a dream world, being a very ignorant type of people, thinking themselves to be wise, they became fools, Paul says in Romans chapter 1. And there's a look there that we really need to think carefully about. We don't want to be that way. And we're certainly not immune to the problem of putting our ideas and our concepts into the text. We've got to be very careful that we simply take what God has given us and be satisfied with that. Now, Peter talks about this matter again. You'll remember from last Sunday night, we talked about how closely related this book of Jude is to the second Peter, particularly chapter 2 and chapter 3. And you'll hear me refer back and forth to these chapters, Jude, Second Peter 2, Jude, Second Peter 3, because there's some overlap in these particular matters, and it's very helpful 
for us to understand these details because it reinforces what Peter had told us was going on at that time. But I have to say, this particular point is needed tonight. It's going on in this day and this time where people have rejected the divine authority of God. And so how, is it, how does he describe them? Well, they've defiled the flesh. Relying on their dreams, they defile the flesh, reject authority, and blaspheme the glorious ones. And so he's telling us in this regard, not only do they live according to their own desire, they've defied the flesh. They decided since they're the authority, they can live anywhere they want to. Since they've decided they've divide, defi, uh, defied the authority of God, that they can come up with their own authority, and what now originally was wrong with God is okay with them. And they've defiled the flesh. They've defiled their lives. But not only that, notice also how they use their tongue to blaspheme God and things that are sacred. He says once again in verse 8, reject authority and blaspheme the glorious ones. Now this idea of blaspheming means more than just taking God's name in vain, though it certainly involves that particular matter. It means jeering at God. It means making sport of and making light of things that are sacred. And that's what these apostates have done. Psalm 73 is a good store, a good study on that particular matter, whereby God has told us even in the pages of the Old Testament how that we are not to blaspheme those things that are sacred and those things that are of heaven. And let me jump to verse 10, because while I'm on this subject of blaspheming the name of God and things that are sacred, notice what he says about that in verse 10, the consequences of such. But these people blaspheme all that they do not understand, and they are destroyed by all that they, like unreasoning animals, understand instinctively. God is going to hold them accountable for these particular matters. They don't understand. They're not using good reasoning. They're not using good sense with regard to their rejection of the divine and that which is holy. But what they are doing, in turn, is making light of and sport of. Now, their arrogance is a very dangerous thing. And because of this arrogance, it's going to lead them astray. I want to go to verse 9. And in verse 9, he says, in this particular point, as it relates to us, but when the archangel Gabriel, contending with the devil, was disputing about the body of Moses, he did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but said, the Lord rebuke you. I don't know much about that. It seems to be a historical event. As you recall, God buried the body of Moses, Mount Nebo, Deuteronomy chapter 34, verse 5 and 6. And no one knows where the burial site of Moses is even to this day. As Moses was allowed to look upon the land of Canaan from afar, he saw how beautiful it was, how that it had grown up and become quite a place for inhabitation, which God had prepared for his people. But he was not allowed to live there because of the waters of Marabah, because of the bitterness that was there, and because of giving himself the glory rather than giving God the glory, Moses was not allowed to go in thereat. But at the same time, he's saying now, the devil was trying to dispute, or Satan was trying to dispute about the body of Moses. I don't know what Satan might have thought he had going there. Maybe he thought... He had a right to that body. Maybe he was saying, yeah, that belongs to me. This is my servant. But yet this great archangel of God is saying, no, I'm not going to rebuke you. I'm going to let God rebuke you and let him handle this matter himself. 
Now, you might wonder, well, why would Jude bring something like that up? Something that, first of all, we don't know anything about, really, historically speaking. It seemed like it actually did take place. But why would Jude bring this up? He's talking about the point. If an archangel of glory is very cautious about dealing with Satan, shouldn't we be doing the same thing? If an archangel of glory will not be presumptuous and arrogant and try to rebuke Satan, but leave that job up to the Lord, shouldn't we be of the same heart and of the same mind and not be filled with a presumptuous attitude, not be filled with an arrogant attitude. Now, these dreamers that he've talked about already, the apostates that we're studying right now, who have rejected divine authority, why, they're very presumptuous and they're very arrogant in their matters in what they're trying to stand for. But the Bible is making very clear that we need to be very careful about any such matter such as that. Now, I am going to turn to an Old Testament uh, passage, forgive me for this, But I'm going to go to Zechariah chapter 3 because I think there is some indication here that might help us understand what took place in this this word passage about Jude, from Jude. I'm in Zechariah chapter 3. Now, Zechariah is a challenging book out of the Old Testament. It comes to us from the 5th, 6th century B.C. In this particular section, though, he speaks very symbolically. And in so doing, he sees the archangel of God. Now, he showed me Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord, and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. And you might wonder, well, what's what's taking place here? And what he's saying in this instance is, I've seen a vision, and it's a type of prophecy. And from that vision, I see the high priest who is there standing. And standing probably refers to the idea of administering worship for the people of the Old Testament. But there's another there, the angel of the Lord, who I suspect, and I think there could be credible evidence to assert that that has reference to a pre-incarnate vision of Jesus himself. The angel of the Lord, but notice also Satan is there. And what is Satan doing? Satan is accusing the people of God. And the Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, O Satan. Now there's a case where God himself rebuked Satan, where an angel of glory, Michael the archangel in the book of Jude, refused to do that. He said, let God rebuke you. And here God did rebuke him in this particular vision. But let's see if I can tie some of these loose ends up so that it makes more sense to us. And the Lord said to Satan, verse 2, the Lord rebuke you, O Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is not this a brand plucked from the fire? Now Joshua was standing before the angel clothed with filthy garments. Let me summarize what's going on here. Here, Zechariah sees this vision of the people of God, but the people of God are sinful. Hence, the filthy garments. But there's coming a day by means of God's redemption and God's divine plan, whereby the garments will be cleansed. And God is looking over, and Christ is looking over the redemptive plan of God for mankind with approval. And yet Satan is trying to rebuke and thwart the divine plan of God. And God says, Satan, God rebukes you. 
There in turn, he cannot thwart the divine plan. <clears throat> now, I'd like to go further into this, but this comes to my mind in Zechariah chapter 3 when I'm thinking about Jude, whereby Jude is talking about Michael, the archangel, and his refusal to rebuke Satan. He said, I'm going to let God do that. And the real point of what's taking place in this very unusual and somewhat ambiguous passage of Scripture is the idea, let us not be so presumptuous. Let us not be so arrogant and ignorant as these false teachers have been with regard to God's divine plan, and in turn be supportive of it. So I suppose Satan thought, I'm going to take the body of Moses, it belongs to me. Just like he thought he was accusing the people of God in Zechariah chapter 3. But God would not allow that to happen. It belonged to God. Now I'm in verse 11, I'm back in my passage, and I'm trying to understand who the apostates are. And these people that he's referring to, woe to them, verse 11, for they walked in the way of Cain and abandoned themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's error (coughs) and perished in Korah's rebellion. Well, verse 11 is a pretty important verse. And he gives us three Old Testament illustrations of people who rejected divine authority. And that's our first point tonight. People rejecting God's authority. First one he brings up is Cain. The first human being to be born was Cain. God has given me a man-child, Eve said. And she called his name Cain. There is some word structure in that particular passage that's very interesting. The point of the matter is, he is born and he's required by God to worship. And as he's required by God to worship, now... He brings from the fruit of his hands. He brings from his own labors. And in so doing, he is rejected. And his service, his worship is rejected. You see, he rejected God's divine plan. He rejected God's authority. And in rejecting God's authority, he had rejected God. And that's why he's being referred to now in this particular passage as a rejection of the authority of God. Abel was a man who was offering out of faith, Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 4, and God accepted his sacrifice. He rejected the authority of God. Now we got another character from the pages of the Old Testament. His name is Balaam. And this particular individual that comes to us from Numbers chapter 22 and 23 is an interesting character. And if you haven't studied the life of Balaam and the historical setting behind it, you ought to take some time and go back to Numbers 22, Numbers chapter 23, And study this particular matter. Balaam comes up a number of times in the New Testament and the Old. 2 Peter chapter 2, once again, he is talking about Balaam making merchandise of religion. Paul said he went to the church at Thessalonica. He established a congregation there at Thessalonica, 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 5 and 6. He said, we didn't come with any kind of greed in our heart or avarice in our mind. We came here simply to preach the word of God. Paul talks about matters such as this, 1 Timothy chapter 6. False teachers come along and they take advantage of the Word of God and they take advantage of people for greed's sake. And that was Balaam's problem. Balak had hired him a preacher. And Balak wanted the preacher to preach it a certain way. And the way Balak wanted it preached was, I want you to pronounce a curse on the people of God. Numbers 22, Numbers chapter 23. And every time, that Balaam opened up his mouth to give a curse, a blessing came out. 
And Balak said, I didn't pay you to come down here and bless these people. I paid you to come down here and curse these people. Because Balak was shrewd. Balak knew that if he could get Israel between them and their God, that he could defeat them in that regard by destroying the purity of the people. But what God has blessed, no man will curse. And for that reason, Balaam is an example of one who rejects the authority of God. His name comes up a number of times. Even in the book of Revelation, Revelation 2.14, talking about the doctrine of Balaam. You see, the rejection of the authority of God is such a key matter, so consequential. And it's the first great point that Jude brings up at this particular section of the book. But I've got another illustration. This illustration is by a man by the name of Korah. And Korah in the days of the Old Testament led a rebellion in Numbers chapter 16. And you know what Korah was saying? He was saying, Moses, you take upon yourself too much authority. You shouldn't be doing this. You don't have the authority to tell us this or the authority to tell us that. And you know what Balaam, uh, Korah did? He started getting lieutenants around him and growing in his faction. And in turn, God destroyed Korah and all of those who were involved in that. And you need to read that great uh, passage of history in Israel in Numbers chapter 16. And what is the point? When you reject the authority of Moses, you reject the authority of God. Because God's the one that gave Moses the authority. If you reject him, you're rejecting God, and you cannot reject God, and at the same time be pleasing in his sight, and you cannot reject his authority. These are powerful examples that we need to remember. And Jude says, you've got a group of people here, these apostates, they've forgotten about the authority of God. They've forgotten about how important it is to respect the authority of God. Cain forgot it in the matter of worship, offering the fruit of his hands rather than the firstlings of his flock. Balaam forgot it in the matter of purity in the people of God. Korah forgot it with regard to the matter of the authority of God that had been given to Moses' delegated authority. Now, I found it interesting as I was going through this section of Scripture, and I was looking at it very carefully, the verbs that are used in this passage. I want to go back and just mention them, and perhaps you'll want to make note of them and maybe take a note or underline something in the portion of your Bible. Verse 11, Woe to them, for they walked in the way. Now this becomes a synonym, or this becomes a a way of describing error. They walked in the way. They walked in the way of Cain. They were practicing what Cain had practiced, and that is a rejection of the authority of God in worship service. But notice what he says about Balaam. Themselves, for they forsook, or for the for the sake of gain to Balaam's error. It was for the sake of gain that they were involved in this particular matter. And Korah, and notice the word that's used for Korah, and perished in Korah's rebellion. So the verbs are very insightful here as you look at how Jude picked those out. And he says, this is the way these people act, and this is the way these people are. Rejecting the authority of God is a serious matter. Some people say, oh, how I love Jesus. But don't tell me how you love Jesus unless you do what Jesus said do. And don't tell me how much you love God unless you respect the authority of God. Don't go beyond God's Word. 
Don't add to it. Don't take away from it. As Paul had mentioned in Galatians chapter 1, 6 through 8, don't try to manipulate it. Don't try to spin God's word a certain way so it comes out better and you like it. It's more acceptable. Don't pervert it, twist it, change it. And that's what the word means in Galatians 1, 6 through 8. I marvel to you so soon removed from him that called you into the grace of Christ into another gospel. Though there's not another, but there be some who would pervert. And that's the word I'm working on. The gospel of Christ, they twist it and they change it. And they twist it to such a degree that it no longer looks like the same gospel. And it doesn't teach the same thing. That's what happens when you reject divine authority. I think this is an important lesson that comes from the book of Jude. But by the time you get to verses 12, 13, and also I'm going to include 16 in this second point, and that is they were people who had resorted to deliberate hypocrisy. Now, you and I understand what hypocrisy really is. Hypocrisy is acting in one way and then in turn being something else really on the inside. On the outside, I look one way. On the inside, I'm something else altogether. And you have some six different pictures of apostasy here. Pretty amazing. Very vivid. Let's see if we can understand them. He says in verse 12, These are hidden reefs at your love feasts. I think the love feast was simply a social time where the church was getting together, just like we would get together on social and social events, a social time together, and yet they were hidden reefs. Now, some translations would say these are spots. In fact, Peter would use the word spots, filthy spots, but yet that word can mean a hidden reef under the water. And every sailor knows that you've got to be careful of the hidden rocks under the water. For if you run up on the rock under the water, it can destroy the hull of the vessel. And in so doing, you've got to be very careful. But if you don't know they're there, it's like a hidden reef. And these false teachers, these apostates are that way. In your love feasts, in the social gatherings that you have together, they're like hidden reefs. Or we may view them as filthy spots. And then he also says they're very selfish shepherds. In verse 12, these are hidden reefs at your love feasts as they feast with you without fear, shepherds feeding them, feeding themselves. Well, we know who the ultimate example of being a shepherd is, and that's Jesus Christ. But these people weren't following the example of Christ. They were following themselves, and they were of such a design and demeanor that they were taking advantage of the opportunity. They were shepherding for their own sake and for their own benefit. Now, the Apostle Paul would express some amazement about this, 2 Corinthians 11, verse 20. Though I'll not go to that particular passage. They're an arrogant people. They're not shepherding the flock. They're shepherding themselves. And that's the characteristic that he's mentioning for us at the present. But then he talks about empty clouds. And it's an interesting illustration as he characterizes the false teacher. Shepherds shepherding themselves and feeding themselves. Waterless clouds swept along by winds. When the farmer is looking for the needed rain, and he sees the cloud that's coming his way, and he hopes that that cloud has a lot of rain that will help with the crop, yet there's no rain in the cloud, and the way the wind just keeps blowing it on the line, on the way. It reminds me of Southern California, really. 
because you'll sit out there and you'll watch and a huge black cloud will be coming up, but there's no rain in that cloud. It's a dry area. It is the middle desert, Southern California. And if you get rain in January and February, good. But if you don't get it after February or even in March, you're not going to get any rain. And it is a very dry area. By the time you get to April, everything's burnt and looks brown. That's Southern California. And that basically is what he's calling these particular waterless clouds. They give the impression they're really going to be fruitful and they're really going to bless when in reality there's nothing there. Now he talks about trees, dead trees in our verse 12. And these dead trees are trees that are in autumn. And it would seem like in autumn they would be alive and would be bursting with fruit and there have be such a blessing to people who are there. But after all, when you come to them, there's no fruit. In fact, they're twice dead because the root is dead. They're dead at the root. That's the illustration that he's using for the present. That's the way these false teachers really are. They're twice dead. Verse 13, he uses another characteristic to describe these kinds of people. They're deliberately hypocritical. And what he says in this particular passage is they're like waves of the ocean. Raging waves in verse 13, wild waves of the sea, casting up the foam from their own shame. And his point there in this particular passage is simply saying that everybody who's been on the water at night, been on the water during the uh, sea, the ocean, and when there's a storm, knows how fearful and frightful that can really be. And uh, it's something that you want to avoid. The point that the passage is trying to make at the present. That's what Jude is comparing these false teachers to. Raging wave, always causing trouble, always kind to be difficult and bringing up those particular matters. Well, he uses another, I think it's interesting, by verse 13, he talks about wandering stars. And I always thought, what does he mean by wandering stars? And I really think he has the idea of a meteor that's in mind as it flashes across the sky. And it's bright, but then all of a sudden it burns up and it's gone and it vanishes and there's nothing there. It's a wandering star. Now, a permanent star is there for guidance and direction and God has placed it there. These wandering stars are of no benefit in that way. Christians are to be a light into the world, but a wandering star, why it's just a flash, all of a sudden it's there and then it's gone That's the way these apostates are. They're there. Then they're gone. Murmurers and complainers. And I'd like to jump down to verse 16 to pick up on his point right there. These are grumblers, malcontents, following their own sinful desires. (laughs) They are loudmouth boasters, showing favoritism to gain advantage. They're murmurers. They're complainers. They're people who are always causing discontent. And that's the problem with a murmurer. That's the problem with a complainer. It's a person who's always causing discontent among people, grumbling, complaining, and griping. And they're in turn trying to cause disruption among the people of God. Now, Paul talks about that, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, and the people of the Old Testament, that they were guilty of that particular sin. Paul talks about this matter in Philippians chapter 2, where he says that Christian people 
are not to be complainers and murmurers and grumblers, as we see in this particular passage. Now, as I said in the beginning of our study tonight, when I look at the qualifications and the characteristics of these people, who would listen to people like this anyway? But they do. People who are obvious in their hypocritical attitude. They're not concerned about the church of the living God. They're more concerned about themselves. Jube says tonight, I want you to meet the apostates, and I want you to see what they're really like. Not only did he warn us, but he said, this is what they look like. This is how they act. This is how they think. There's a third point, though, that we need to consider. And it's my third R for tonight. They will receive their penalty. And that's what he brings up in verses 14 and 15. I'd like to spend just a brief moment talking about that this evening. Now, I've got another interesting point that comes up with the name Enoch. And he tells me that Enoch is the seventh from Adam. It was also about these that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied, saying. Now, I don't know where Enoch prophesied that. I don't know where that came from. Now, I think, I think he calls him the seventh from Adam because he's trying to reduce any kind of confusion as to what Enoch he's talking about. Adam, Seth, Enos, Canaan, Mahalio, Jared, Enoch, Methuselah, Lamech, Noah. Now, those, that's the rundown, ten generations from Adam to Noah. And then you got another ten generations from Noah down to Abraham. But the seventh generation from Adam is Enoch. And Enoch, in this particular matter, is prophesying, and he says in verse, our verse 14, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his holy, holy ones to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly of all their deeds. Well, his point here is that Enoch is um, prophesying about that. Now, I mentioned about this last Sunday night. I'm going to mention about it again tonight. Somebody's always coming up with the book of Enoch and talking about the validity of the book of Enoch. And I don't see that there's anything trustworthy about that apocryphal book. It is not a part of our Bible, and it shouldn't be a part of our Bible. But people want to look at the um, book of Enoch, an apocryphal book. Then there's another book called The Assumption of Moses. And I didn't really mention that when we were talking about the uh, matter of Michael rebuking or lacking, failing to rebuke or wouldn't rebuke that of Satan over the body of Moses. These are apocryphal books. Now, scholars come along at this particular verse and they say, you see there, he's quoting from that book. And therefore, that book must be an inspired book. But I don't buy it. Just because he quoted from that book does not mean that it's an inspired book. Paul would do the same thing. Even as your own poets have said, and he would quote, does that mean that the poets of the Greeks were inspired? Obviously not. Simply because he refers to this does not necessarily mean that it's inspired at all. And then secondly, it may be a book that we do not have, that Enoch prophesied, and we don't have that book, and never have had that book, and never will have that book. It's not a book for us to have. It doesn't, it does not validate the book of Enoch. And that's what I'm reacting against to tonight. Okay, then what does he say? He talks about the judgment. He said, now Enoch prophesied about this judgment. And he said, Behold, the Lord comes with 10,000 of his holy ones. 
to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly of all their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way and of all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against him. He's going to bring judgment upon the wicked. And that's certainly something that we have studied about. Again, I'm referring back to 2 Peter chapter 3. This discussion about the judgment, about heaven, about hell, is a live issue even among ourselves tonight. That there are some who really need to go back and study carefully what the Bible has to say rather than try to foist on the Bible what they want it to say. But the Bible's making very clear that there is going to be a judgment. And of that I cannot deny it. Second Peter chapter 3 verses 1 through 4. And I want to talk a little bit about the judgment in the closing moments of our study tonight. And I'm looking at verses 14 and 15 and that's where my comments are coming from. Jude 14 and 15. This judgment that he talks about. The apostates are going to receive punishment. And it's going to be a personal judgment. I think that's something that we need to always keep in mind because sometimes we think, well, God is going to come and judge the world. And that's true. But keep in mind that that world includes me personally. And sometimes I get the idea, well, the judgment won't be so bad or I don't have to think about the judgment because the whole world's going to be judged. But I'm part of that world. And I'm going to be judged personally. For example, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 10. What a marvelous chapter 2 Corinthians chapter 5 is. As it talks about the judgment, it talks about the end of time. And in that passage of Scripture, he says, all of us will stand before the judgment seat of Christ to give an account of the things which we've done in this life. We're going to have to give an account. It is a personal type of judgment. And Jude is discussing the execution of that judgment, the giving of that judgment, for all mankind, and especially the wicked, are going to receive the judgment. But it's also a universal judgment. I'm making mention of the fact that it's personal, but it's also universal. It's for everyone. Do you know that everyone in the world died from the flood except the eight precious souls that were in the ark? Noah, his wife, his three sons and their wives. Everyone else in the world died. Universal judgment that God had brought upon the world. Do you know that everybody in Sodom and Gomorrah died because of God's judgment, with the exception of Lot and his two daughters? It was a universal judgment. Judgment brought upon all. Do you know that all men everywhere are going to face the judgment of God? and are going to have to give an account for what they've done in this particular walk of life. It is not only personal, it is universal. But I think as you read verses 14 and 15, you're going to see that it's just. It's a just judgment. The wicked will receive what they deserve. God will execute a righteous judgment with regard to the wicked. You know, if you went to court today, you'd stand before a judge. And then, depending on the type of court case we're involved in, let's say it's a criminal case, 
You have a prosecutor on one side, you have a defendant on another side, but you've got a jury over here. A hand-picked jury panel that now is to sit and decide whether what you're saying is true or what they're saying is true, and you hope that you are able to convince this jury my client is telling the truth and they will decide in favor of my client. But when God judges, there'll be no jury. There's no jury. There is no defense attorney. There's going to be a judge, but there's no jury. There's going to be a prosecutor, but there's not going to be any defense. There's going to be a judgment, but there's not going to be any court of appeal. There's not going, it's not going to go any further. And you're not going to be able to go up to a higher court and say, I think a mistake has been made, and I think there needs to be a reversal of the judgment. It's not going to work that way. And the point that I'm trying to develop is it's going to be a just judgment. Because God knows. He knows the hearts of men. He knows our minds. He knows what we've done. He knows what we have not done. And in turn, He will judge us accordingly. Now, as we studied this morning, those who are beating to the gospel of Christ and are faithful to the Christian life can face that second coming with confidence. By repenting of sin and confessing faith and being baptized into Christ, there one is preparing his life for the judgment. And the judgment for the child of God will be quite a different affair because the judgment for the child of God will be a time whereby one will be welcomed into the joys of the Lord. Whereas the judgment of the wicked, which is really what Jude is referring to in verse 14 and 15, will be a condemnation and a conviction of the sins, what they've done, why they've done it, and why the sentence that they're going to receive. They're going to receive the punishment for their sins. Now, personally, I don't want that. What I want is God's mercy and God's grace. And I can have and obtain that by being obedient to the gospel of Christ, by living the Christian life. I'll say it for the third time, and I don't mind being redundant on this point. I don't understand why anybody would listen to people like we have learned and described tonight from the book of Jude. But they do. And I can't understand. I'm telling you, I can't understand it. Why people will not respect the authority of God and embrace it and live by it and be satisfied with it rather than be like Korah, rather than be like Balaam, rather than be like Cain who would offer worship of his own devising rather than recognizing the authority of God Almighty. Jude's a powerful book and Jude's a book that we need tonight. But he's not quite finished yet. Lord willing, we'll spend another Sunday night on Jude. We've got a beautiful doxology to study here, and we want to do our very best with it. If you're not obedient to the gospel of Christ, I hope and pray you'll become a child of God tonight. And if you've been unfaithful to the word of God, I hope and pray that you'll repent of your sins. And this song of encouragement is selected for you. I encourage you to come while together we stand and while we sing.